This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Today's show is all about accelerating the transition to a zero carbon economy. We talked to Professor Ross Garneau about his new book, The Superpower Transformation, and in the second half to Kay Winnegal and Michael Stendel about how you can buy a second-hand electric vehicle in the Darabin bulk buy event on November the 6th. So it's all happening and we can start to see the challenges and the realities of where we're going. As we move towards COP27 in Egypt, I want to see Australia transformed from the colossal fossil to the good neighbour. The Industrial Revolution is well on the way and we have been laggards. As France implements energy sobriety and Europe doubles down on its commitment to energy efficiency, will Australia find a new economy? Our challenge is that we have the potential to generate 600 or 700% of renewable energy, not just the 43% that we are targeting. We can export it and we can use it here to process minerals with zero emissions using hydrogen. We also have enormous mining capacity, both overseas and here, to find the transition minerals like lithium and copper. Demand for these will increase enormously as the world decarbonizes. But there are red flags everywhere. If you saw the foreign correspondent episode about the Sami people, a voice from the Arctic, you would realize the dangers of green extractivism. The sea Sami dread the poisoning of their fish as tailings from a new copper mine are pumped into the fjord. And listeners to this program will remember Carlos Zorilla talking about a Gina Reinhardt company pushing to open a copper mine in the biodiversity wonderland of Ecuador's cloud forests. The background sound that you can hear now is from life singing out in the Ecuadorian forest. The trick is to keep all this in mind when we hear the big visions of techno-optimism which are so seductive. We need to explore more alternatives and I'd welcome any help from you listeners if you would like to contribute to this program next year. Just phone 3CR on 0394198377 and leave a message for the Climate Action Show. Now we hear from Roscano. Today we're talking to Professor of Economics, Ross Garneau. His new book is The Superpower Transformation. Ross sees two events that have placed Australia in a stronger position just this year. The first is the election of the Labour Party in May and the disruption of the Russian oil and gas exports to Europe after it invaded Ukraine. So all recent news. He says Europe hesitated and then committed decisively to the new economy. Well, my question is, will we make the same commitment? So I'm delighted that Professor Roscano is with us today. And welcome, Ross. How are you? Hello, Vivian. Good to be here. Well, look, the key word for you is transformation. And I'd like you to tell us about your COVID year up in central Queensland at Barkaldine. Like, what transformations do you see for regional areas like Barkaldine, the model? Yes, well, the, the mayors of the west of Queensland came to see me a few years ago and uh, uh, they wanted to talk to me about whether that wonderful sunshine they have in the inland of Queensland and quite good wind where, 
where uh, hills rise above the plains, whether they could turn that into sustainable jobs. They, the only new jobs they said they'd had for two generations uh, to keep their kids and grandkids in the region had been in the uh, uh, Galilee Basin, in the coal industry, and uh, they knew they were unsustainable, but, but uh, jobs are jobs. And if it keeps your grandkids uh, at home rather than disappearing to Sydney, then uh, they'll take an unsustainable job, but they want, they would rather have a sustainable job. So they came to me and to see whether there was any real prospect. And, and uh, uh, I, I responded to that by accepting an invitation to have a look around the region. We ended up deciding to focus on one place first uh, uh, and uh, Bach Alden seemed to be the best prospect of all of those Western places because it's got a uh, uh, a strong uh, connection to the Queensland grid, which the other places didn't have, but also it's a centre of transport, north, south, east and west, and uh, seemed a good place to start. And so uh, I'd, I'd been engaged in those conversations when COVID hit us and uh, when it became clear that Melbourne was going to be locked up for a very long time. And just before everything got locked up, Jane and I uh, uh, made a couple of phone calls to, uh, that, that established would be welcomed in the central west of Queensland, uh, packed the car and away we went. And uh, so we spent nine months uh, uh, in, uh, well, it was a good way to spend uh, COVID. Um, people were respectful of uh, need for isolation and so on, but uh, somehow it's not such a big restriction to only have six people in a coffee shop in Barcourt and then uh, it would have been in Ligon Street. Uh, and and that, that uh, while I was there, I was able to take forward some of the thinking and discussions about what we could do there. Uh, it, it's complicated in, a, um, uh, in an area that doesn't already have a lot of industry because you've got to uh, organize all of the services at the same time. And so it's easier to get a number of things going uh, at the same time, rather than one thing in isolation, because you're providing the services, water, uh, electricity connections, uh, uh, transport, uh, um, uh, training infrastructure, you're providing it for a number of uh, organisations that reduces the cost. Uh, so uh, well, we ended up uh, identifying a number of businesses, uh, established that there was some interest from businesses in other parts of Australia in doing that. Still working on it. Uh, it's it's a, a big job, but uh, it seems to be coming together and uh, using the low-cost uh, solar energy, low-cost wind of the region. There are a range of things that we can do and number of jobs involved, a few hundred uh, jobs. Uh, transformative for a, a, a bush town uh, wouldn't be noticed in uh, Brisbane or Sydney or Melbourne, but uh, makes a huge difference uh, in a rural or provincial setting. Uh, and they're sustainable jobs. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, over the next year, uh, see, see things happening on the ground. Um, and uh, there are opportunities like that in a lot of places in rural and provincial Australia. We're going to see uh, uh, a transformation of the economic geography of Australia if, if we use our opportunities well, because the solar and the wind is out in the bush. Uh, and um, uh, we can still use the old industrial centres built around the coal fields uh, for for industry, but uh, and they the old transmission lines instead of taking power out from the coal generators uh, to to other places, will be bringing the same transmission lines, bringing power in from other places into uh, those industrial centres. But a very high proportion uh, of the new opportunity, the new economic activity, will be in rural and provincial Australia, and I think most Australians in town and in the bush, uh, would think that was a good thing. Oh, yes. Well, look, there's an idea in your book about green steel, and we've heard a bit before about green steel, but you saw an economic um, sort of opportunity for China to lower its costs of decarbonisation. At the moment, we just export the iron ore and China processes into steel, but using keeping it here and using hydrogen, green hydrogen, it would reduce 
global greenhouse emissions. What, what support for this idea is there in China? Well, the chapter, the, the book, uh, Superpower Transformation, I've got a long essay at the beginning, more than mm. 100 pages, but then there's a, chapters by specialists in different things. And the, the chapter on the Chinese steel decarbonisation is written by a, a fine economist, Professor of Economics at ANU, uh, Li Gangsung, of, of Chinese background and keeps close contact with the Chinese um, steel industry. It's not just China, of course. In fact, it'll happen more quickly with probably with uh, Japan, Korea, Germany, uh, uh, Western Europe, but uh, the big opportunity is China because China uh, uh, makes more than half of the world steel, also uses more than half the world steel, uh, it makes it and uses it. And, and just the turning of iron ore into iron, just the basic metal before you do all the further processing, just that process uh, accounts for about 7% of global emissions. And uh, 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 that's in the world. And in China, because China's got more than half of it, about 4% of global emissions are just turning iron ore into iron metal in, in China. Now, the majority of their iron ore comes from Australia. Currently, you turn iron ore into uh, iron metal uh, by uh, using carbon, uh, usually in the form of coke, uh, made from coal, uh, and then the, the what iron ore is, is iron oxide, and the coke, the carbon atoms take out the oxide, the oxygen, uh, and leaves the iron metal, and the, the waste that goes into the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and that's uh, greenhouse gases, and, and doing this in China with Australian iron ore alone would be more than twice as many emissions as all, everything in Australia. We would reduce global emissions by twice as much just processing in Australia, the iron ore before it goes out. We'd reduce global emissions by twice as much as reducing our own to zero. Uh, with the, you can use hydrogen. And if you use hydrogen, then the, the hydrogen atom uh, pulls the oxygen out of the iron ore. Uh, and uh, leaves the iron metal. So the process, in a way, is similar, but instead of carbon dioxide being the waste, H2O uh, is the waste. Water which, uh, is, is not a pollutant, um, just goes into the atmosphere, or you could collect it uh, in places where, where water is valuable. So that's the process. It's zero emissions if the hydrogen is made with zero emissions. Now, we've got another chapter in the book by Frank Gotso, Professor of Economics and Climate Change at the ANU about hydrogen. Well, yes. hydrogen, you can make it from coal or, or gas, in which case it's got a lot of emissions. Or you can make it by uh, using renewable, renewable energy to split water, H2O, to split the hydrogen from the oxygen. And, and if you use renewable energy, then there's zero emissions. And so that's, that's what green steel is, using green electricity to through a process called electrolysis to split H2O, get the hydrogen, then put the hydrogen with the, uh, the iron or, or the iron oxide, uh, take away the oxygen, leave the metal. So it will happen. There's a lot of interest in it in, in uh, all the big steelmaking countries of the Northern Hemisphere. And most of the world's steel is made in Northeast Asia or in Europe, most of it in Northeast Asia, actually, China, uh, Japan, Korea, but quite a lot in, uh, in Western Europe. And neither of these regions have very rich renewable energy resources. So yeah. the very best places for solar in Germany are worse than the west coast of Tasmania, which is the worst place in Australia. But even if even if their resource was just as good, and it's not, but even if it was just as good, they don't have the land. Uh, uh, we will need many, many square kilometres of uh, solar to do all this, and you just couldn't put that in. Japan or Korea or Germany uh, or uh, coastal or uh, um, or central China where the where the industry is, so uh, they have a real issue now. Uh, in the old uh, economy where we make uh, iron and steel with coal, uh, a lot of it uses Germany a little bit, but China, Japan, Korea use a lot of Australian. Uh, coking coal and they can do that economically because it doesn't cost very much to ship 
coal, but it costs a lot to ship hydrogen. Oh. Uh, and uh, or and you can actually send the renewable energy by uh, submarine cable. Yeah, and we've got some uh, like uh, uh, like, the, like the Northern Territory is doing the same. Yeah. but it's very expensive. Yeah, the electricity or the hydrogen is more than twice as expensive at the other end as it is here. So economically, it's much more sensible to use the renewable energy here. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. And our guest is economist Ross Garneau. The idea of Australia becoming a superpower has raised all sorts of red flags for me. How can we go from being the colossal fossil at climate conferences and a climate criminal in the eyes of our regional neighbours without a transformation of our extractivist growth mentality? So I asked Ross about critical minerals. Australia is leading in supplying lithium, iron ore and aluminium, as well as many other. Energy transition minerals, these are sometimes called critical minerals, like copper and lithium, and they're going to see a boom in demand. And in your book, you say seven times the present demand by 2030 is likely. And I'm worried that this will ride roughshod over precious ecosystems and First Nations sacred places just like all the extractive booms before. And we into listeners might remember we interviewed Carlos Zaria in Ecuador. He lives in the cloud forest and it's a biodiversity wonderland. But at the moment, it's being threatened by a company, Australian company, um, partly owned by Gina Reinhardt, who's pushing to open the copper mine there. And I wonder how confident you are that this rush or like what needs to be put in place for this new rush for transition minerals um, to be regulated both here and for Australian companies abroad? Yeah, well, uh, they're, they're really the same issues as with any mining. Well, we, we can't have a modern economy uh, with... Uh, uh, metal, uh, medical equipment, and uh, and electric cars uh, with, with without minerals, without without iron and copper and aluminium and and now for the new industries uh, the energy transition minerals. You've mentioned lithium, but there's a whole lot of others, vanadium, cobalt, and others. You can't have a modern economy and modern medicine and modern education, modern communications uh, without mining uh, but everywhere uh, mining can be done in, in different ways in different places and uh, uh, good practice good policy avoids mining in a way that does unnecessary damage to environment <clears throat> and that in the damages particularly valuable environments and that's up to uh, governments to make sure they've got policies in place to uh, to, to prevent mining in particularly environmentally valuable and, and sensitive places. Now, the issues there are exactly the same for the energy transition minerals as for the old minerals. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and without uh, respectful treatment of the rights and interests and values of First Nations people, without respectful management and knowledgeable management of the environment, uh, then we'll, you, a mine can do more damage than it does good. Uh, and so it's a matter of uh, strong environmental management, uh, strong uh, management of community uh, uh, values uh, in the new mines, just like it should be for, for the old. Now, we haven't always done it so well with the old mining. Uh, 
uh, let's make sure we do it well for the new mining. Well, that's what I was thinking. We have a new government. I hope that pressure will be on them to manage this and we've better. Got a, we've got a very knowledgeable uh, and yeah. able uh, Minister for Environment. Uh, we have. Uh, Tanya Plibersek, and uh, uh, if anyone's going to get it right in Australia, uh, I, I think Tanya will. So, so uh, no pressure, Tanya, but uh, <laughs> we we need the future to be better than the past. Yeah, well, there is a lot of pressure on her. Like a lot of the <laughs> listeners will be writing to her quite frequently. Look, sticking with transition minerals for a minute, I was shocked to read in the book. There's a chapter by Mike Sandiford, and he said training for geophysics and metallurgy is close to extinction it's through COVID cuts and so on but he said our once internationally acclaimed school of earth sciences at ANU has been savaged and celebrated scientists were forced into early retirement well I'm wondering what signs are there that the new government will invest in the training of people who can safely manage these transition minerals uh, well it's tremendously important that they do I, I would I was invited to speak at the Jobs and Skills Summit uh, uh, in Canberra Parliament House uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago. There was a lot of focus on the need to do, for Australia to do much better on skills and uh, and education there than it had done in recent years. So at least the general uh, questions being addressed. Uh, it's a tragedy what's happened to uh, education, a lot higher education, a lot of these specialised areas. And Mike Sandiford draws attention to the tragedy in the sciences. I I think we got into that position on the last government because the, the last government actually was a bit anti-intellectual. Uh, it had a real choice how it used JobKeeper money, for example, and jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, given it, uh, it gave about a, I think uh, I think about a quarter of a billion dollars for JobKeeper uh, for um, casinos because they were. Uh, they had less uh, big rollers coming in from Asia, couldn't come in. Well, the universities didn't have their foreign students bringing in money, but somehow the, the previous government gave priority to the casinos rather than education. I, I think the, uh, the the discussion at that economic and the, uh, jobs and skills summit suggests that uh, the new government's ready to uh, take things seriously. There was no explicit discussion there of this particular sector, but it's tremendously important that we rebuild our education and training skills for everything to do with the new economy we have to build. We have to transform Australia. Yeah, Yeah, that's got to be a transformation area because if we're going to have a boom of of one sort of minerals, well... (laughs) going to need to have people who can manage that boom properly. Yeah. Well, I'd like to go now back to coal and gas exports. When I spoke to our Minister Chris Bowen, he suggested that decisions about all of that are made overseas. Otherwise, the interview was excellent. It was I could agree with nearly everything he said, but it seemed to me that he was, in other words, leaving it open for new coal and gas projects, subsidising them to make windfall profits, because the real reason is the world is not going to count those exported emissions as our Australian emissions. But the Pacific nations call them our emissions and demand that we, you know, cut back. Civil society is throwing itself against banks and AGMs at the moment all around Australia to stop fueling new coal and gas projects. So what would your advice be to government? Well, Chris Bone's right on on the central thing that uh, the way the world allocates responsibility, it allocates responsibility to the country in which the emissions take place. And I I heard him, I was on Q&A with him last week and he gave the example of cars. Uh, The cars that we drive and have lots of, use lots of petrol and lots of carbon emissions, uh, we're responsible for that because we, drive the cars and make the emissions, not Japan, because it exports the cars. Uh, that's just the way the international community decided to allocate those responsibilities. So so the first job is to make sure our own emissions go as soon as possible to zero. Um, then for the for the exports, I, I, I say in my book that um, uh, superpower transformation, that it's critically important that we don't subsidise its industries, amongst other things, because it will be a waste of money, because... Uh, uh, if you're if you're subsidising exploration for gas or coal now, uh, then uh, it will only start a mine in half a dozen years' time. It'll still be going in 20, 30 years' time. Well, 
with the world has net zero emissions in 2050, uh, it will have almost no coal mining or gas mining. Uh, lots of people haven't faced up to that reality. And so uh, partly because a lot of people in the mining industry don't believe it is a reality. They believe the world will fail. Now, they wouldn't put it like this, but they believe that the world's going to be a mess, uh, that uh, climate change won't be controlled and they'll still be exporting gas and coal. I think the critical things are the, that government doesn't export that because that's a waste of government money. On, mm. on uh, If you believe the world, if you think it's likely that the world will get its act together on climate change, and I do, uh, the superpower transformation is an optimistic book from that point of view, then any investment's going to be wasted. The, the, not, not that long after the new mines are built, there'll be no demand. And it will be other countries' action that leads to no demand. Uh, I think that will happen. Uh, so we shouldn't be subsidising them. And we should make sure that that the things that we're responsibility go to zero as soon as possible. Uh, we are responsible for the very large fugitive emissions uh, ah. that come that when you develop a when a company develops a coal mine or a gas field, there are very large amounts of uh, carbon dioxide and methane go into the atmosphere. We just allow that to happen freely at the moment. Very important that we well we are responsible for that. On Chris Bowen's answer. That, that says we are responsible for that. They should have to stop them or not, not make them or stop them or, uh, or pay for them and pay a proper carbon price uh, for them. Uh, the, the, my, the mining industry hates that idea, uh, but uh, that is something we should insist on. Yeah, excellent. Look, we're speaking to Professor Emeritus of e Economics, Ross Garneau, about his new book, The Superpower Transformation. Ross, I enjoyed your webinar with farmers for climate action, and the farmers were very taken by your idea of rural renaissance, and they asked you very specific questions about urea for fertilizer. And apparently Australia imports 92% of its urea, according to the chapter in your book by Susanna Powell. And she says the bill for one farmer, she knew, grew from $1 million to $3 million in just a few years. So this is what we're looking at. Farmers facing big urea import costs. And you reckon we could manufacture zero carbon urea here. How close are we to that? And what are the advantages? Well, well first, a little bit about the process. And it's the same sort of story as for iron ore. You, you make urea and nitrogenous fertilizers out of hydrogen. And you can make hydrogen in a dirty way or a clean way. Yep. And at the moment, we make urea by making hydrogen in a dirty way. Uh, we've only got one plant in Australia making urea. That's in Brisbane. And that's due to close at the end of the year because gas prices have gone up a lot. But everywhere in the world, urea is mainly made out of hydrogen, made out of coal and gas. And there are huge emissions from that, whether, whether we import it or, or make it here, huge emissions. Uh, now, just like with iron, you could, if you use hydrogen um, that made from renewable energy, it's zero emission. So that's the process. And we can do it cheaply here. When the whole world is doing it with zero emissions, we'll be a cheap place to do it, a natural place to do it. But, uh, but it, will be a it will be especially cheap to do it close to where the urea is used in the regions yeah. that use a lot because transport costs are quite high for a product like this. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, nearly all of our urea is imported. Up until a year or so ago, uh, there were three places it came from, uh, China, the Middle East, uh, and Russia. Uh, well, China decided as part of its own zero emission strategy, it wouldn't export any of these products that contain a lot of emissions because that's attributed to them. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they say, well, what we don't want to uh, incur a lot of emissions and be responsible. A lot of commissions are just helping farmers elsewhere. So they stopped exports. And so the price of urea went up a lot because they were a big exporter. And then uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and there was a ban on Russian exports. So prices went up again. Uh, and the Middle East is left making a urea out of gas. Uh, very em high emissions. 
Uh, and uh, it's not such a stable supplier either. So the price is now much higher than it used to be. At the current price, you could quite easily do it uh, economically in decentralised locations. Now, uh, there will be a worry from an investor about uh, what happens when the Russian war ends and Russia starts exporting again. Will prices come down? So there might be a role for government in, uh, in providing some assurance about... Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. about price at the moment at the price at the moment it's economic right now uh, yeah. but because there's so much uncertainty in these markets uh, um, there, there might be a role for uh, for, for, for government in uh, in providing some uh, assurances on uh, yeah. future markets yeah. I prefer them to subsidize that than more gas but look, <laughs> you see Australia I thought the most astounding thing in your long essay was you said Australia could eventually contribute over 80 percent to global emissions reduction and this would be through the export of zero carbon goods that we've talked about and carbon credits well, I think that's huge where do we need to invest to make that happen well it's a big investment and I say we'll have to invest five and a half percent of our GDP until the 2050s. Well, right now, five and a half percent of GDP is over $125 billion. Uh, uh, and five and a half percent of GDP is a, sounds a lot of money and is a lot of money. But we invested more than that in some years during the China resources boom. When China was growing very strongly, they need a lot more of our minerals, coal, gas, iron ore, and we were investing more than that in those industries uh, to supply China. So, so it's actually been done before. Instead of supplying traditional uh, uh, minerals to, uh, to help the growth of China, it'll be supplying um, uh, the, the new materials, zero emissions materials for the world. And uh, uh, a lot of it will be processed minerals. We've already talked about that. Uh, a lot of it, uh, uh, some of it will be processing biomass for petrochemicals so that we're using uh, sustainable zero emissions materials rather than uh, coal and gas in plastics and, and products like that. Um, some will be carbon credits. Now, we need very strict uh, rules to make sure that they're legitimate uh, uh, credits for legitimate sequestration, but there's ways that you can do that, and there's quite a lot of discussion in the book about ways you, you can do that. Uh, so in the end, uh, the biggest investments will be in the solar and wind, but we'll need huge amounts of it. And we, you began by asking questions about the environmental impact of mining. Well, there's an environmental impact of uh, solar and wind as well. And so we have to become very good at managing that well. And we'll have to be, uh, we'll have to recognize that the huge amounts of solar and wind that we're putting in, a lot of it will be put in uh, areas that are important to Indigenous Australians. And uh, they will have to have a major role in managing this. Now, now I've been discussing these issues with uh, Indigenous groups now for quite a few years. And generally, there's a very positive attitude to it. But they want to have a big say in how it's done and where it's done. There's some places it's quite consistent with uh, traditional values, but there's some places where they don't want it done. And so we've got to be uh, knowledgeable and respectful and, and Indigenous Australians have to play a big role in, uh, uh, in shaping uh, what we do. Uh, so... Uh, huge uh, uh, investments in solar and wind, also very substantial investments in, in industry. And as I say in the book, the starting place for the industry will be a lot of the old coal power generation centres, towns like Gladstone and, and in Queensland, uh, well, Townsville also in the north of Queensland. Uh, the big uh, starting places for the industries, bringing renewable energy in instead of sending coal-based power out will be Newcastle and Port Kembla in New South Wales. Victoria, the places to start will be the Latrobe Valley. The Premier recently made big announcements about that. Uh, Latrobe Valley and uh, Portland. South Australia will be the old, what they call the Iron Triangle. Wyala, um, uh, Port Pirie, Port Augusta, old industrial areas that used to have their coal generators. That's where you'll get the first new industry in uh, Western Australia, very good place is Collie, 
uh, where, which used to be the coal mining uh, center. And the premier there announced that all coal mining and coal power generation will close by uh, 2029. Ha happens to be 200th anniversary of the uh, of white settlement in Perth. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so Collie can become an industrial center. In West Australia, there'll be others, so the iron ore mining areas, the Pilbara, and then, then the Midwest, the Geraldton area, where there'll be very large... Uh, use of uh, the very rich as wind, uh, as well as solar resources. So the starting point for the industry will be the old industrial towns and then new ones will develop. And then as we discussed, a lot of decentralized industry, but the biggest investments will be solar and wind in, in uh, rural and provincial Australia. Yeah, well, that's very comprehensive. And listeners, I think the best thing you can do is buy Ross's book and read it or Buy another copy and give it to the library or to a local high school because it's an easy-to-read book in a way. It's economics and it's hard-headed industry stuff, but really it's it's a book that a lot of people should read. We learned your name, I think, with the Garno Report back in 2008, was it? But, you know, I'm glad that you're still contributing and have the ear of government. And really, I the only... Well, I have a lot of problems about all of this superpower to begin with. You know, superpower always has overweening ambition and, you know, terrible connotations. <laughs> but, you know, it can all go terribly wrong. But um, I think the investment in education, as you've mentioned, to people to manage this sensitively and properly and ethically, yeah. because we're very late in history now for it to boom and bust. So thank you for talking to us. Thanks, Vivian, and uh, all your cautions are uh, well well made, and uh, uh, and there's no reason we can't do it properly. So let's make sure we do. Okay, thank you. We've been speaking to Ross Gano, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Melbourne University. Thank you very much, Ross. Right. This song is called "The Coal Owner and the Pitman's Wife," and it's sung by Robert Farmer. It dates back to 1844 when William Hornsby wrote it during the Durham coal mine strike. And I wonder now, who will write the ballads of green extractivism? Dialogue I'll tell you is true as me life Between a coal owner and a poor pitman's wife she was travelling all on the highway She met a coal owner and as she did say Derry down, 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 Derry down Good morning Lord Firedamp, the woman did say Now don't be alarmed, sir, don't be afraid if you've been where I've been the most of me life You'd never turn pale at a poor pitman's wife Derry down, 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 Derry down And where do you come from, the coal owner cried I come from hell, the poor woman replied if you come from hell, then come tell me right plain How you contrive it to get out again Derry down, 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 Derry down The way I got out, sir, the truth I will tell They're throwing the poor folks all out of hell this is to make room for the rich wicked race For there's a great number of them in that place Derry down, 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 Derry down And how does the devil behave in that place? Sir, he is cruel to the rich wicked race he is far more crueler than you can suppose 
Just like a mad bull with a ring through his nose Derry down, 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 Derry down If you be a coal owner, take my advice Agree with your men and give them a fair price and you do not, I know very well You'll be in great danger of going to hell Very down, 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 very down It's in the evening after dark When the black-legged miner creeps to work with his moleskin pants on his dirty shirt There goes the black-legged miner He takes his picks and down he goes To hew the coal that lies below But there's not a woman in this town row Will look at the black-legged miner Now don't go near the Dalaval mine Across the way they stretch a line Catch the throat and to break the spine of the dirty black-leg miner And Segal is a terrible place They rub wet clay in the black-leg's face And around the heap they run a foot race To catch the black-leg miner They take his duds and his tools as well And they hoy them down the pit of hell Ah, down you go and fare you well, you dirty black-leg miner So join the union while you may, don't wait till your dying day For that may not be far away, you dirty black-leg miner And now it's my great pleasure to have Kay and Michael back on the Climate Action Show. 3CR listeners will remember them from the Friday morning science and tech show that they conducted. And they're talking today about how to get second-hand electric vehicles with good guarantees and affordable prices. Hello, I'm Michael Steindl. Today we're talking about electric vehicles and more specifically about buying them and buying them more cheaply. And to do that, we've caught up with Kay Winningle, who's actually... Um, traveling around the Tarkine at the moment. And uh, so we're lucky to catch her for this interview. Kay is the project manager and organizer for the Darabin and Northern Melbourne electric vehicle bulk buy. And that's the specific example we're going to talk about with Kay today, but um, it, it applies much more widely than that. Kay, tell us about the Darabin and Northern Melbourne EV bulk buy event. Hi, Mike. Thanks for your time. Uh, yeah, so I'm really privileged to be part of this um, bulk buy event that's been organised by DCAN, the Darabin Climate Action Now group. They've partnered with the Good Car Company from Tasmania, or they're based in Tasmania, but are Australia-wide, to uh, organise an electric vehicle bulk buy event for the Darabin and Northern Melbourne area. This means that the residents of the northern suburb, suburbs of Melbourne can play a part in the movement to decarbonise transport by taking public transport, active transport, and choosing an electric vehicle. This bulk buy program will help people do that more affordably, much more affordably, in fact. Why would anyone want to buy an electric car? <laughs> well, that's a very funny um, question. <laughs> I'd actually ask the question, why wouldn't they buy an electric car? But I'm a bit biased, I've been... I've had an electric car for seven years. But when you consider it, an electric vehicle um, is so much cheaper. It's pollution-free. It's cheaper to run over the long term, even though it may be considered to be more expensive initially. It's just so exciting to, to um, be in an electric car. The performance is so much better. And it's better for the whole community. So... What's not to like about that? So why a bulk buy then, Kay? Well, affordable and electric car are words we haven't been able to put together before. 
here, we're excited to, and proud to be able to deliver a range of affordable electric vehicles to kickstart the decarbonisation of transport in northern Melbourne. And when you look at the cars that are, that are on offer from the good car company, they start off just over, I think, about $20,000, which is so much cheaper than we've been led to believe an electric car is. That's why when you do a bulk buy, you can actually make the car more affordable by buying in bulk. So it, just to make sure I've got this right, this good car company is actually buying multiple cars and, and importing them and passing on the savings. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And what's more, they're actually able to access cars that aren't really electric cars that aren't even available in Australia otherwise, such as vans. And there's a, a lot of interest in vans at the moment because the tradies are looking for those sort of vehicles. Uh, you see my tune now. I need an electric van for my handyman work. Hey, how will this bulk buy work? Okay, so the bulk buy is opened now, and so you can register for the event. You can go to www.goodcar.co forward slash Darabin and press on the register button. Or you can just Google Good Car Company and look for the bulk buys and you'll see the Darabin and Northern Melbourne bulk buy option. So just on that topic, you're, you're talking specifically about Darabin and Northern Melbourne, but I know this program goes much wider than that. Is it? Uh, are they offering these bulk buys anywhere else other than just North Melbourne? Yes, they are. In fact, there's another bulk buy that's running at the moment in Randwick, Sydney, and there have been others around the country um, in Byron Bay, Geelong, and there'll be more coming up in the future because it's becoming very, very popular, this bulk buy. So uh, continuing with what's going to happen with this particular bulk buy, tell us more about that, How what people will be able to do there, see there, how it will work. Okay, so once you register, you get information about what's going to happen from there on. And the first thing is the launch of the bulk buy event, which is on November the 6th at Bundura Secondary College. And it goes from 10 o'clock until 2 o'clock. And that is actually the show and shine event where anybody in the community who's interested in learning more about electric cars and in taking the next step forward to their transition to an electric car can come along and ask questions of people. There'll be ambassadors there with their electric cars and they'll be, you'll be able to talk to them and question them about electric cars. You'll be able to get test drives. There'll be a presentation and information from the good car company and also the good car company team will be there to talk to and, and chat with them about the benefits of participating in an, an electric vehicle bulk buy and also the savings that it generates. Along with that, there's going to be great coffee, snacks, sausage sizzle and live music. So it'll be a, a really fun event. Sounds great. Who specifically is involved in this, this event? Darabin, DCAN, Darabin Climate Action Now and the Good Car Company have organised this event, this bulk buy event. And the um, other councils, this, the Yarra Council, the Merribeck Council, Nillambic and Whittlesea Councils. So there's an, a number of areas in the northern suburbs that are involved with this. Can you give me an idea of how much I'll save or what sort of price for second-hand good quality EVs um, you'll, you'll be able to offer? Well, first of all, it won't just be second-hand EVs, but there will be a lot of second-hand EVs available. Um, but there are also um, new cars as well. When you look at the website, the Good Car Company website, you'll see that there are second-hand electric cars available from about $20,000 onwards. And, you know, it depends on the, the type of car it is, the range and so forth. But that that's the starting point. If you're buying through this Darabin bulk buy event, then you get a, a further discount on any car that you buy. Okay. And I, I do know from, I've heard you talk about your personal electric vehicle a number of times that you've had for six years or something. And you make the point that, one of the huge savings is in the fuel and maintenance that although an electric vehicle might have a higher capital cost, um, is you make that up so quickly in your maintenance savings, don't you? Yes, of course. That's that, that's the most amazing part of it. Like I've had my 
EV for seven years and the running costs so far have totaled $600, whereas my previous petrol car, I think, was costing me about $1,500 um, a year on average, and that's not for including... Maintenance. That's maintenance only. That's not including petrol. So the petrol costs were costing me about $2,000 to $2,500 a year. At the moment, it's costing me $4 every time I charge my car. 3CR. Okay, um, everyone worry, worries about small companies and things. This good car company, what sort of guarantee have people got of, of their viability? Um, who's behind it and how long have they been running? There were three environmental scientists who started the good car company about four years ago with the goal of creating a cleaner, safer and healthier Australia. And they offer a good car company guarantee with every one of their cars. Their cars are fully checked and come with a battery and mechanical warranty. Now, if you buy a car and you have any issues, um, the good car company works to resolve them as quickly as possible. As well as that, for peace of mind, the good car company supplies a 12-month roadside assist with NRMA with coverage anywhere in Australia. Okay, so that uh, that would give me a lot more peace of mind than just buying one secondhand from someone else. Yeah, it's quite different, isn't it? Yeah. So can you tell us, Kay, about the, the type and range of cars that will be available under this deal or in general through the good car company? Yes. So there's a number of Nissan Leafs. Um, there's a 30-kilowatt-hour one, 40-kilowatt-hour, 62-kilowatt-hour, and each of those um, you know, has a different range as well as the Nissan van, the ENV 200. There's a two-seater and a seven-seater, and both of them are 40 kilowatt hours. Also, there's the Peugeot e-Expert van with 50 kilowatts and also the 75 kilowatt hour, and the Polestar 2. Okay, so you mentioned um, along the way there different ranges. What sort of ranges will these um, previously loved cars have? Well, they will vary depending on the model and the battery capacity of the EV. Before purchasing a car, an electric car, a good car company checks the vehicle's battery diagnostics report as well as protecting you against dud battery by offering the a battery degradation warranty. That And that warranty protects you in case that car's traction battery enters a state of rapid decline. Also, all the vehicles are low mileage, so the range should be close to that to a new car. Just harking back a little bit to my previous question about the uh, the good car company and and their guarantee, I did hear some news recently about Atlassian investing. Um, mm. You didn't mention that. Can you tell us what's going on there? Mm, that's really exciting. Atlassian has invested over more than $10 million into the good car company, because as the good car company is a social enterprise and working in a space that no other company or organisation is working in, providing secondhand vehicles that will seed the secondhand market and make secondhand or make electric cars much more affordable to people that just can't afford an, an expensive electric car. That's um, it's going to make it much easier for people to get secondhand cars because. The good car company is going to be able to import more at a much greater rate, at a much faster rate. That's uh, a real vote of confidence, isn't it? For those who don't know Atlassian, that's Michael Cannon Brooks's company, um, and he was basically responsible for getting Elon Musk to do the the big battery in South Australia, um, the world's first uh, hundred megawatt battery, um, and he's investing in a lot of good environmentally um, sound projects, like the Sun Cable project <laughs> in the Northern Territory where they're going to supply power to Singapore with an undersea cable of 4,000 kilometres. Yeah, that's an exciting one. So and the the other perpetual question is, should I invest now or should I wait for a, for a car with a longer range? <laughs> well, that's always a question. Um, at the moment, you won't get any cheaper electric car than the, the, this opportunity. And so you can wait for a long time and pay a lot more for a car with a longer range you'll never have an opportunity to get a car as cheaply as you can now with this well, buy opportunity. Okay, so just to round this out, 
what's this show and shine day that people are talking about? When is it and how will it help me? Okay, well, when you register, you get information about the bulk buy and the show and shine event on November the 6th, as I said, at Bunder, a secondary college. And again, that's for everybody in the community that's interested in learning more about EVs and in taking the next step to getting to transitioning to an electric car. So the good car company vehicles will be on display there. So the Nissan Leafs, um, the different ranges that I mentioned before, the 40 kilowatt hour to 62 kilowatt hours, the Nissan vans, the Peugeot vans, and the Polestar 2. And you'll be able to have test drives and the EV ambassadors will be there to talk to you about their experiences, as well as the presentation from the good car company team. As well as that, once the show and shine event is finished on the um, 6th of November, there'll be further information sessions and the meetings where you can explore more, you can ask more questions. And again, it's all obligation free. Um, and then it gives you the opportunity to register and actually be part of the, the electric vehicle bulk buy. So this is um, 10 till 2 at Bandura Secondary College, November 6, um, just for those who uh, weren't sitting at a table writing while this was on. Um where specifically can they go uh, on the web to uh, just verify this this information to find out what's on? Yeah, so that is www.goodcard.co forward slash Darabin, and then you'll see the register button. Um, November the 6th. And um, just be clear that uh, this doesn't commit you to buying uh, in the bulk buyer or anything, but it does give you the chance if you're part of the catchment area, as I understand it, to um, sign up for possible major discount or yeah, so everybody can come along and be part of this and to learn as much as you need to and to ask questions and to get more information about electric vehicles and um, discounted electric vehicles cheaper than electric vehicles generally are that's no obligation and that's open to everybody as well as that if you're part of the Darabin bulk buy you can get an extra discount of the vehicles because it's a bulk buy event. Okay. Um, thank you so much. I know this is your first break in three years, and so we're sorry to interrupt your time in the Tarkine, but um, that, that is wonderful to have this information. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks for your time. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yarrow Country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. I'm thrilled that you've stuck with us tonight. These discussions should provoke many more and we'd love to hear from you. Just phone 3CR at 0394198377 and leave a message for the Climate Action Show. We're especially looking for contributors for our next year's program. Thanks tonight to Professor of Economics Ross Garno and to Kate Adamson who helped us connect. Thank you to Michael and Kay for their item on the Darabin Bulk Buy event on the 6th of November. The details to register will be on our podcast notes at Climate Action 3CR. This is a great initiative from Darabin Climate Action Now. It's at Bandura Secondary College on Sunday, November the 6th from 10am. The song tonight was from Robert Farmer, the coal owner and the pit man's wife. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical centre of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can 
you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. The Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. <laughs>